We're in Romans chapter 11, and to ask you to turn there. Now, one of my endearing memories growing up in, in Chattanooga is that I would go to my grandparents' house pretty frequently. They lived about 10 or 15 minutes away, and they had a giant storage room in their house. Now, this was not, any, this was not a tiny closet. This was a 300-square-foot, 15-foot-high ceiling floor-to-ceiling storage room. It had ladders. You rolled the ladder along. You see, my grandfather was a pack rat, and he saved everything from um, all portions of his life and his killed children's life, my mom and her siblings. And one of my favorite things to do in there was to go in for hours at a time and rifle through all of the relics, right? There were games and toys and baseball cards, and oh, I wish I had those baseball cards, okay? The chemistry sets, the, the books, the games, the puzzles, and, and I would just spend hours in there, and it was at that time in my life, I was probably five or six year, year, years old, I was introduced to that most amazing of board games, and for you who are in the over 50 crowd, you know right where I'm going, it's the board game called The Mousetrap, Right? And the mousetrap, see, I, I, I see that twinkle in your eye, you over 50 crowd. The mousetrap was first manufactured in 1963, and here's how it would work. So contestants would be around this little game board, and over the course of the game, they would construct this mousetrap. It was this giant contraption where you would get this little metal ball, okay, and you would put it in a, in a thing, and you would turn the crank, which never worked, of course, and, and, the, and the ball would go down the slide, and it would go over the steps, and over the river, and through the, I mean, it would did all these twists and turns, right? And then, so finally, at the end, it dropped down, and there was a little plastic man on the diving board, remember him? And it would hit the, the, the diving board, he would pop up into the air, he would land into the plastic water tank, and then the mouse trap would come down and trap the mouse, okay? That, that was the deal. And I thought this was uh, the greatest thing ever invented, right? I would spend hours over this thing, um, working it and reworking it and trying to figure out how it worked. And let's be honest, it worked about one out of 50 times. Let's be honest, one out of 50 times. But when it did, right, it was glorious, and just thinking about the engineering marvel that it was as a five or six-year-old, I didn't understand totally how it worked. I just knew it worked, and it was cool, and it was awesome, and it was spectacular. Now, in a lot of ways, we have the spiritual version of that in Romans chapter 11. We are going to see this morning, and really over the next two weeks, a spiritual plan designed by God that at first seems utterly improbable, utterly inscrutable, utterly complex. But as we study this word, as we study this plan, as we unpack it together, I think you are going to come to the place where I've come that this is nothing less than supernatural genius. Now, one thing we're going to learn, right, this is, this is, this is not the way we would have concocted this. This plan of God by which he is working in our lives and he is saving his people, this is not what we would have come up with. This is, this is not what we would have dreamed up for good reason. You see, God wants to make it clear when he does what he says he's going to do that you and I had absolutely nothing to do with it. That all the glory, all the honor belongs to him, that we can simply stand back and be 
amazed at the way God is working. So what is this plan involved? Okay, Paul's addressing the question, if you've been with us, you know this to be the case, where are the Jews? It's the second generation in the Christian church. They look around, have a room this size, mostly Gentiles, maybe a very few ethnic Jews, and people are asking, Paul, what's going to happen to the Jews? Or is God done with them? And remember, we left off last time by, by Paul sort of giving us a snapshot of where the nation of Israel is. And by the way, this is true even to this day. Paul says that there is a, there's a remnant of Jews, ethnic Jews, that God has preserved in every generation. But the vast majority of ethnic Jews are hardened. They have, their, 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 their minds have been put in a stupor. The, the things, their own Messiah is foolishness. They've rejected Jesus Christ himself. And so this is the state of things. But Paul then returns to one final question in our text. And it's the question that we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks. And it's simply this. Paul, is that the final word on the matter? Is this the way it's always going to be, that the church is just going to be primarily Gentiles, a few Jews here and there, a small remnant, but that ultimately ethnic Israel will just be known as the group of people who rejected his own Messiah? Are they, is this the way it's always going to be? And Paul takes the opportunity of that question, and it's an amazing thing, to sort of pull back the curtains on his plan, on God's plan of redemption, to give us a, a picture of what God is up to and how he is working um, that I think will take our spiritual breath away and give us confidence, not just in the way God is working in ethnic Israel, but the way that God is working even in our lives. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to be in Romans 11 now I'll invite you to stand as we read God's Word, verses 11 through 24. So here's the question Paul asks. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. 
For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray. Father, we freely confess when we think about your ways, your ways in the world, your ways in our lives, um, we're often baffled. We, we don't know how to make sense of it. But Lord, you want to show us that from start to finish, you know exactly what you are doing. And Father, I pray that by getting a glimpse into what you are doing redemptively in the lives of ethnic Jews, that we too will have an emboldened confidence to know that you who have begun a good work will also carry it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Supernatural genius is the name, title of this sermon. Now, having just told us, the church in Rome, that the vast majority of ethnic Jews are hardened, even to this day, Paul asks the question of the hour. Look at verse 11. He says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall. In other words, is this the way it's always going to be? Is this, is this all we can expect from God, Paul, when it comes to the ethnic Jews? And Paul wants to make it crystal clear, absolutely not. And there are three things I want to point us to in the text this morning. So we're going to talk about, first of all, God's plan. We're going to talk about his provocation how he accomplishes this plan, and then our posture, how we respond to all this. Let's look at the plan, and it's, you gotta, you gotta pay attention, right? Uh, we, we, gotta, we gotta follow along like you're playing at home here. The plan, verse 11, it says, through there, and that's, that's Israel, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Jews. Now, to get the full impact of that statement, we have to go back a moment to Genesis chapter 12. And we studied this this summer when we, on our summer, summer series, The Story of Israel, where God made a promise to Abraham, remember? And he said, Abraham, I, I'm going to take you. I'm going to start with one. I'm going to bless you and your family. I'm going to make you into a people. And this people will in turn become a great nation. Of course, this is the Jews and this is the land of Israel. And this nation in turn will what? Be a blessing to the world will be a light to all the other people who don't know you. And, and this theme that God is going to use the Israelites to save the world, you see it all throughout the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 49. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Here it is. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 
Now, that's, that's the proposition. But here's the thing. It doesn't tell us how God is going to do this. See, we assume in our human way of thinking, in our linear way of thinking, it's very simple, Pastor Paul. God saves Israel, and then God uses Israel to save the world. But see, this is where the inscrutable, mysterious purposes and plan of God are revealed because it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen the way we think it's going to happen, or let's be honest, maybe the way we think it should happen. Look back at verse 11. Rather, Paul says, not the way it's going to be, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, this is kind of mind-blowing. In other words, it's not through the salvation of the Jews that the Gentiles have come to know Christ. It's through the rejection of the Jews, of their own Messiah, that the, that the Gentiles have been saved. And, and let, let me give you an example from the New Testament where we see this very clearly, right? So Paul and his missionary journeys, Paul, he was set, a, set apart by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. But we know Paul always had that place in his heart for his brethren in the flesh, the ethnic Jews, and, and this is back to why he's writing this, because it's, he would rather be accursed than to see them perished. And so what Paul would do when we'd come into a city on a missionary journey, whether it's Thessalonica or Ephesus or Philippi, he would always go where first? To the synagogue. He would always look for some Jews, even though his primary mission was to the Gentiles, because his heart just burned for them. But invariably, what would happen? They would kick Paul out of the synagogue. And by kick Paul out, what I mean is they tried to kill him. And, and here's an example in Acts 18. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to whom? The Jews that, Christ was, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, please understand something. The Gentiles, the salvation of the world, non-ethnic Jews as well as ethnic Jews, that's always been a part of God's plan. It, the, the Gentiles, the fact that we're here, it's not plan B. It's not as if God said, I'm going to save the Israelites, but because they rejected me, oh, those dumb Gentiles, I'll let them take a part. That, that, that's, that's not, it's always been a part of God's plan from the very beginning. However, however, the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, and we see it here in Acts 18, propelled the church into an even more purposeful and intensive outreach and mission to the Gentiles. More so, even otherwise, than would have been the case if the Israelites, the Jews, had immediately accepted Jesus. And, and this is something, by the way, we see through, again, throughout the New Testament. So let's, let's remember, when the founding of the church, or not, not the founding of the church, but really the, the empowering of the church in Jerusalem, when 5,000, 3,000 came to know Christ, they were all of them ethnic Jews, every single one. And something, I mean, this was an amazing thing. Jews were coming to salvation. 
Um, the church was growing, but the majority of Jews remained hardened and began to persecute the church. Now, something interesting happened as the church congregated in Jerusalem. God had told them, you need to leave Jerusalem, right, to go and be a light to the nations. You need to scatter. You need to take the gospel. But they do what oftentimes happens even with healthy churches like ours. They liked what was going on. They had good fellowship. They were breaking bread. They were helping each other. They had the one another life. To leave Jerusalem, that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. That sounds like I need to be on mission, and I kind of like it here. And so what did God do? God raised up persecution from the Jews, and in, in, in irony of all ironies, who led that persecution? Paul. God raised up persecution from the Jews against the church so that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem scattered across the world. Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so from the very beginning, we see this idea that God is using, orchestrating the rejection of ethnic Jews, of their own Messiah, to further propel the mission of the gospel going out to the Gentiles, okay? Now, let's, let's see how this plan continues to unfold. Okay, look down at verse 12, or verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, let's through, the, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Okay, this is kind of a part two to the plan. Okay, part one of the plan is that Israel rejects their own Messiah. And that becomes the very vehicle and tool by which salvation is poured out on the Gentiles. Gentiles are coming into the church in mass. Guys, this is us. We're the living legacy of this. That, that, that God poured his mercy and grace out upon us using the rejection of the Jews of their own Messiah as one of the very means and, and vehicles by which this would happen. But Paul says that that's part one of the plan. But here's a part two. Part two, Paul says, is one day, because of the influx of Gentiles, like us, into the kingdom, a righteous jealousy is going to be sparked within the Jewish community. The Jewish community, in fact, Look down at verse 12. There's going to be a massive influx of Jews which will flow into the kingdom after the full allotment of Gentiles has come in. And Paul calls that in verse 12, the full inclusion. Now, next week, and we'll talk about this more then, in verse 26, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now, we don't think that means every single Jew or ethnic Jew but what we do believe this means, this full inclusion, is that the great mass majority of ethnic Israel is going to come into the kingdom. And the way this is going to happen, and this brings us to point two, is a provocation. Okay, so let's look back at the text. Now, we're going to camp out just for a moment on this idea of jealousy. 
or envy. Because it's used several times in this passage. In fact, Paul says the envy that the Israelites have for the Gentiles, for us, is going to be the very thing which propels them forward into the kingdom. Now, let's be honest. We've all been taught most of our life that jealousy is wrong, right? Jealousy is selfish. Jealousy is possessiveness. Jealousy is about self. After all, the most famous love passage in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, says what? Love is not jealous, right? Love does not envy. However, I want you to consider this scenario. For those of you who are married, if you found out that your spouse was going on a romantic getaway with someone not named you, got that picture in your mind, okay? How would you feel? Might you feel a little jealous? Oh, I would hope so. I would think so, right? Rightfully so. Now, one reason I don't read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, at wedding ceremonies, and if you had that read at your wedding ceremony, I'm sorry you got it wrong, okay? I really am, okay? You're still married, but nonetheless, I don't think Paul is talking. Some of y'all have real looks of disbelief looking at me right now. 1 Corinthians 13 is not a chapter about marital love. 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter about love in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, putting others first, serving one another. It's not a picture of marital love, right? Because in marital love, oh boy, there better be a jealous love, right? And, it, and the reason there is a jealous love in marital love, that you are jealous for the affections of your spouse, is because it's a picture of the jealous love that God has for his people. Listen to Zechariah 1.14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am, what, exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. In other words, God wants their affections. God is jealous for them. He wants their hearts. Your spouse wants your heart. You want to want your spouse to have your heart. This is what I think Paul is talking about here. This is what we would call a divine jealousy, a supernatural jealousy. And, and, and I think this is kind of how it works. So when Susan and I were, were dating and we were um, still in college or just out of college, I remember one of the things that we would do is we would go over to older couples' homes who had been married 10 years, 15 years, and they would have their little crew of kids, and they were running their home, and they, were, they seemed so happy and all this. And, and one of the things that that sparked in me was a jealousy, okay? Now, not a, not a jealousy in the sense of like, I'm, I'm being selfish, or I'm angry, or I despise that person for what they have, and I want that. No, no, I mean, it was a divine jealousy where I said, oh, I want that. I would love to have a family. I, I would love to have a wife and children and have the blessings of the home, right? I want that as a part of my life. Guys, that's what Paul is talking about in the spiritual realm. He says that's how salvation, and I think it's not just with the Jews, I think it's, I think it's, it's, 
it's the totality of all conversions. He says, this is how salvation will work with the Jews. They will see the depth and the peace and the certainty and the joy and the assurance of forgiveness that you have, and they will be drawn irresistibly towards it. Now, now understand something. This, this does mean you'll have to say something, okay? This doesn't have, happen osmotically, which I've always wanted to say in a sermon, right? Like, oh, there goes that person. He looks happy. I wonder why. Jesus, that's the reason why. That's, that's not how it works, right? But people notice something different. They notice things about your life. And when you were prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you, and you began to share your story, which we talked about last week, God begins to work um, a divine jealousy into the fabric of your relationships. And guess what? That is a good thing. Now, if you want to know, and this is not in the notes, okay? I just want to tell you, not in the notes. If you want to know why millennials are by and not by, not there's many millennials that are awesome. There's a whole, a whole set of millennials that, are, that by and large or are foregoing having children at all. They'd rather travel, post their picture on Instagram, you know, all those sort of things, right? Why, why is that? It didn't just happen. That stuff's not taught, it's caught. When children grow up learning, I'm just, I, I'm, 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 just a, I'm just a vehicle, right? I'm just a means to something else for my parents. My, my parents are living their life vicariously through me. I'm, it's more important what I look like to the outside world than what people actually value me in, in terms of my character. This, this is how this happens, right? And so, so, so we know this caught, not taught thing is an incredibly powerful thing, but it's particularly powerful when it comes to conversion. My guess is, maybe not without exception, but for most of you, one of the things that drew you to Christ is that there was someone in your life that was just profoundly different and told you why. There, there, it was something about their marriage. It was something about their parenting. It was, it was something about the way they conducted themselves on your col- in your college dorm or in your fraternity or in your sorority. There was something profoundly different about the way you carried yourself. Let me just ask you a question, okay? Then we're going to leave this point. Are you living in your life in a way that sparks a divine jealousy in your life and relationships? Do, do, do you have a category for that at all in your life? You see, it's very interesting. The world is not going to be attracted to you because of your money or your travel, or your hobbies, or your vacation, or what sports team you root for, or the houses you have, or the places you go, because you know why? They can have all of those things apart from Christ. Don't need Jesus to have any of those things. But you have what they most desperately need. You have contentment. You have joy. You have a clear conscience. You have assurance of salvation. And no amount of stuff in the world will ever bring that. All right, let's keep going. Back to the plan for a second. We're still under provocation, but I kind of switched back to the plan. Just let me, let me go back to the plan for a second. Here's one thing that I find fascinating that Paul seems to say will happen 
as a result of this provocation. So we already know, right, the Jews reject their Messiah, Gentiles come into the kingdom. We're testimony to that. Then we see Paul say this influx of Gentiles will, in fact, be an occasion of divine jealousy where all Israel will be saved. There'll be this massive influx of Jews into the kingdom at a time in the, and we'll talk about this next week, at a time in the future, right? But there's one more thing that, that Paul mentions here. It's almost as in passing, but it's fascinating. Okay, look back at the text. He says, for if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, the Jews' rejection means, re means salvation for us, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What does that mean? Paul says when the, when the Israelites come back to the church, to Christ, their own Messiah, it will be like life from the dead. Now, some would say that that signifies the time when Jesus will come and establish his rule and reign and, and the, you know, the, the dead shall be raised, and that, that, that could very well be. But one of the things John Stott makes reference to here, and, and, I, and I think he's right. I want him to be right. I'll just say this, okay? And, and you can't argue with John Stott until heaven because he's with the Lord, right? So, so, so if you're going to quote something on the edge, make it from a dead guy, all right? So you can talk to him later. That life from the dead, he says, is a metaphor for the fact that at the time of the final judgment and the resurrection at the end of the age, where this massive influx of Jews is going to come into the church, that this will in turn be a stunning development of the world. So much so, and he calls this the boomerang effect, that as all of these Jews are coming into the church, and let's be honest, guys, that is going to be a glorious day. I hope I am here to see it. Probably won't be. I know that's a shock, okay? Everybody in the 70s with Lake Great Planet Earth thought they were going to be there to see it, right? But it's going to happen. But when that happens, Stott says this phrase, life from the dead, to him signifies this idea that the world is going to be amazed, the world is going to be stunned, as you can imagine, and we will see a massive world revival and evangelization and conversion unknown in the history of humanity. And it is going to be a glorious thing. Because when, now, when I was in seminary, I had a professor from North Carolina named Dr. Kelly. I would imitate his voice, but you North Carolinians would be offended, but he, was, he, he always said, Paul, I can't prove this, but it's my, it's my belief biblically that at the end, when Jesus comes, there will be many more in the kingdom of heaven than there will not be. Now, so let me stop there. Some of you hear that and you scoff under your breath, right? Because you've always been told, America's going to hell in a handbasket, right? We are the remnant. We're holding back the tide of evil. When in reality, let's be honest, guys, you know revival is sweeping through South America. Africa is seeing unprecedented growth in the church. Southeast Asia, guys, there, is, there are more Christians in China than there are in America. And, and, and God is moving. God is on the move. God is... 
afoot. And when I began to study passages like this and other passages which talks about one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the, as, as the waters cover the sea. I'm not talking about universalism, okay? I'm not talking about everybody's going to be saved even if they reject the Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, in the end, might mercy triumph over judgment? Might there still await the history of humanity a world conversion in evangelism, like an evangelization that like we cannot even imagine. And you can see how it would happen. What millions, Jews coming in to the church, knowing their Savior, professing Jesus Christ, the world will be astounded. Will it happen? I don't know. But I don't think it's without biblical basis. And I invite you to Pray with me for it. Now, what do we take from this? What kind of application do we take from all this? Guys, let me just say this. A lot of times, we become very consternated with trying to read the tea leaves in our life. We try to read it globally. We try to read it in our nation. We try to discern it in our lives. We're where we wonder, how, does this fit with this, and does that fit with that, and if this happens, and that happens, and, and maybe God, did, and, and, and we kind of get ourselves in a, sort of in a spiritual pretzel. And one of the things that we learn from a Romans 11 is don't try to figure out how God is doing what he's doing. Now, we know what God is doing, okay? He's saving his people. He's glorifying his son. He's calling people to faith and repentance. I, we, we know what he's doing on that level, but a lot of times we haven't the slightest clue how he wants to do it. We, we mistake things that happen in our life, suffering and setback and pain and, and deep struggle. We, we mistake that, that the, the, the purposes of God have been thwarted in my life. And if you're just looking from the outside at the nation of Israel right now, you would say the purposes of God are thwarted. Paul wants to remind us, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have a clue. Don't, don't read the newspapers in an incessant search for end-time scenarios. Don't spend the bulk of your life looking back on your life wondering, what if? God's told you, Christian, what to do today. It's called Micah 6.8. What, O oh man, does he require of you? To do justly to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Just be faithful, just be obedient, just pray like crazy, be poised, pray for God to do great things, expect God to do great things, and rest in God when he does something we don't understand. That's, that's one of the lessons of Romans Chapter 11, last point or we'll be done. What is our posture here, both towards the Jews and to our own spiritual lives? Well, look at verse 17, and what Paul is going to describe here is how we as, Jew, as, as Gentiles are now to relate to unbelieving Jews. 
Okay, that, that, that's what Paul's going to tell us. And by extension, okay, how we are to posture ourselves to God as we walk forward in faith. And the way that Paul does this is that he, he draws on this, on this metaphor of the olive tree. And in this metaphor, the olive tree, God is the root. God is the roots. And people are the branches. And Paul says there are some branches on this olive tree that are ethnic Jews that don't believe. There are some branches on this tree are ethnic Jews who do believe. There are some branches on this tree of Gentiles like you and me who do believe. And there's other branches of Gentiles on this tree who don't believe. And what Paul wants to say is, is that the branches of the ethnic Jews have been broken off through unbelief so that new branches, us, can be grafted in Gentile Christians. Now, there's a couple reasons I think Paul's talking about this. One, I love the way he refers to us. What are we in this scenario? A bunch of wild branches, right? We are foreign interlopers. We are the heathen, right? We are the people who were far off from God. And so if we begin to have an attitude of, of I'm in and you're out, Paul wants to warn us, wants to remind us to say, no, 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 you don't stand by your work. You stand with God by your faith. And so conversely, one of the things that we can say here, look, and look at verse 18, he, he puts the warning this way, he says, do not be arrogant towards the branches. And he's talking about ethnic Israel. There's one thing that we can say for sure from this text is that Romans 11 decisively undercuts any sort of anti-Semitism. Historically, the Jews might be the most hated, despised, and persecuted people in the history of the world, maybe so. When we were in Europe this summer on the Reformation tour, we would see these little brass plaques sort of embedded in the sidewalks and the concrete in front of homes in Europe, and we we're asking someone, what, what, what are those? You say, oh, well, that's, those, those, those plaques are there, and they had names of Jewish citizens on them and a date. He said, if you find a plaque in front of a home, that means that Jews live there. And it means that they were removed from that home and taken away to a concentration camp where they were exterminated. It's our way of helping us to never forget, right? And so we know the history of the world is full of anti-Semitism. Guys, sadly, the history of the church is also full of it as well, which seems odd when you consider Jesus was a Jew, Paul was a Jew, and we're being reminded here hey, you've kind of been grafted in, you've been duct taped to the olive tree, right? Because um, one of the, my heroes of the faith, Martin Luther, toward the end of his life when he was super sick and had begun to lose his mind, said all sorts of terrible prejudicial things against the Jews. And by the way, 
which we all need people around us when we get sick and older and senile will tell us to shut up, right? Okay, stop posting, <laughs> stop talking. I mean, just like, just, re- just you're, you're doing great damage to the gospel. So there, there's a real call here in this chapter, right? Be kind to your Jewish neighbor. And it's easy to think about Jews as like, that's Israel, okay? And we took a trip there one time as a church, and maybe we'll go back. Because ethnic Israel is right next door, literally. Just drive by here on a Saturday, and you will see them gathered on Sabbat, worshiping God. They desperately need to embrace their Savior. God is not done with them. And we'll talk more about that next week. But here there is also a general admonition about our posture in our spiritual lives in general. Okay, look at verse 21. Paul says, so do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, ethnic Israel, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Thank you, Paul. That was helpful, right? What does he mean? Because let me just say that, that with all analogies and metaphors, there's no perfect, there's no perfect one-on-one correspondence to any particular metaphor. That's why they're metaphors, right? So let me say, first of all, what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying you can place your faith in Christ, you can be justified, declared righteous, only then to lose your salvation. Only then to have God come along and say, hmm, you're not doing so well there. You're not being super obedient, super righteous. I think I'm going to cut you out. Okay, That's not what Paul is saying. First, this would go against everything he's already said in Romans 8, right? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We, the key, I think, is verse 20. Look there. How are branches broken off? And again, a branch being broken off is just a metaphor for unbelief. See, what was happening is that there were Jews who would attach themselves to the ethnic group of God's people. They were observing the rites and the sacrifices and going to the temple, and they, were, they had all the appearances of being a part of the tree, right? But ultimately, they were not coming to God in faith. They were trusting in themselves, and they persisted in unbelief, and thus were broken off. You guys, surely you can see the modern equivalent, right? Going to church, youth camp, mission trips, Sunday school, Bible studies, is no guarantee that you are a part of the tree of God. The tree, the branches, the true branches are those who are standing by faith. So what does Paul mean then when he says to to, to persist in the kindness of God? He means, and I don't think it's complicated, he means keep believing, (laughs) keep trusting, keep running to Christ. Guys, faith is not a static thing. Faith is not a one-time decision you made when you were eight and then again to have nothing to do with. That's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is an ongoing, fluid, dynamic 
relationship where you are coming anew and fresh to Christ every single day. And Paul's saying, don't stop. Keep going. And, and as we keep going, we will look back and say, the reason I'm able to keep going is because of the grace of God. And so Paul is saying, keep believing, keep trusting, keep running to Christ. Has this really landed on me, I think, in a, in a, in a heavy way this week? Um, you know, we've been in this building like 13 years now, which means we've accrued all kind of crud everywhere, okay? Half of it's mine, but freely confess. But we had a little project in the office admin area where they were cleaning out all the stuff that was in there. And they came across this stack of brochures. And this is a, the brochures that we had made or the church had made for some sort of event or campaign event that we had done about 15 years ago. And I began to look at this brochure and it's filled with pictures of branches, people. And, and, and some of these were amazing because it was like, oh, I, I knew that branch then. Man, what, what faith, what transformation, what change, what Christ-likeness. Look at the way God has, has used them over these years. There was also some just, you know, some sadness because there were some branches there that are now with the Lord. And, and they finished their race and they're enjoying the joy of their, of their king. Because undoubtedly the saddest part was seeing the branches that had been broken off. Those who had fallen away because of unbelief. Those who, like Demas, because he was in love with the present world, have deserted and walked away from Jesus. And so, do we as Christians need to hear these warnings in Romans 11? Oh, yes, we do. And in hearing them, the true branches are those who say, God, keep me. God, sustain me. It is all by your grace I cling to your mercy and faith and repentance, Jesus. Keep me to yourself. That's what branches do. They know that apart from the tree, they have no life. Now, this passage ends, and that's a sober warning, no doubt. But actually, Paul ends this little, little section with an incredibly hopeful note. And as I read this last thing, and we're, we're winding up here, I want you to get in your mind those branches in your life that are heavy on your heart. It's a child, it's a spouse, it's a friend, it's a college roommate. It's someone who's seemingly walked away, seemingly been broken off through unbelief. And I want you to listen to what Paul says. Now, this is amazing. Verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. I want you just to camp out on verse 23 for a minute, okay? You don't know what God will do. Yes, I know that branch is broken off. I know that branch is persisting in unbelief. But guess what? Guys, this is a promise. God has the power to graft them in again. Either that's true or it's not. 
just because someone is persisting in unbelief today does not mean that by the supernatural sovereign grace of God that he opens their eyes to see the reality that I am living apart from the tree. So don't give up. Persevere. Keep on praying. Keep on loving. Keep on serving. Keep on believing. Knowing that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's the, ki it's the kindness of God that leads you to Christ. Let's pray.